Week three of our new series, 40 for 40, looking together at the 40 most influential chapters in all of the scripture, which when compiled kind of go into eight, eight different compartments of themes, eight of the biggest themes in the scripture. And to guide us through this, I uh, encourage you to pick up this book, the good book, 40 chapters that reveal the Bible's biggest ideas for a couple reasons. Number one, I know the Bible can be intimidating. I know it's big and the language is old sometimes if you have an old translation and you could pick it up and start in the wrong place and get lost and you get into Leviticus and you wonder what's going on. And so I, I wanted to give you a guide. Um, and so I offered this uh, at the price we were paying for them out at the Welcome Center. You guys bought every single copy. This is the last copy I have and I will, because I'm a capitalist, sell it to the highest bidder immediately after today's service. Um, and so uh, this is the last copy, but they are available online at Amazon. Go check out The Good Book by Darren Spoo and Kyle Eidelman. We are working through it. 40 days, we thought, tied nicely to the period of Lent. 40 days in Lent, you could get yourself to Easter and have gone through all of the big themes of the scripture and know a tremendous amount of the stories. It's not too late because this series is going to be bridging each side of Easter. So we'll be continuing on plenty of time for you to join us. With that said, here's what we've learned so far. Week one. We looked at the Judeo-Christian account of creation, which was different than any of the other ancient stories, as marked by one never-before-imagined, let alone spoken or hoped for, concept. It was a word in the Hebrew called Salem. In the Latin, maybe you've heard it as Imago Dei. And it was this, that God created man and women, white, black, rich, poor, powerful, weak, God made everyone in the image of God. In the ancient days, it was thought that the kings were made in the image of God because that's what the kings told them. But this story says that you are made in the image of God. And because of that, it means that everybody is imbued with implicit worth and value from conception all the way until death. But not just that. That would be enough. The word Moses used in Genesis to describe th this concept of the image of God was the same word used for image and likeness um, that God uses when he talks about that there's no need for statues to be made of him. In fact, one of the later commandments in all of the scripture says, don't make statues of the Lord. Here's why. Because that's what the kings of the earth did. In the ancient world, because there was no internet, TV, photographs, anything like that, what the kings would do is they would go around and they would put up these marvelous statues of themselves. You've seen them, right? The guy is always a big, kind of ripped up guy, strong guy, because the kings wanted you to be in fear of who was in charge in the land. God says, do not make images of me. I don't need images of me for people to understand who it is I am and how I rule. Do you know why? Because he has us. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We were to reign under God's character with his power for the benefit of man so that all the earth could see who reigned. God's plan was to graciously share his power and create this community of loving people that would exercise his dominion through his strength, marked by his goodness. This was what we were created for. 
I told you a couple weeks ago, N.T. Wright gives this wonderful visual of this um, through this imagery of a mirror. When he was a little boy, he was sick in his room and he couldn't see his mom. He wanted his mom to be with him. So his mom took a mirror, angled it in his doorway at just the right angle so that as he lay in bed sick, he could look into the mirror, see the reflection of his mom, and find comfort. His mom could look into the mirror and see her son. And so what, what N.T. Wright said is that we were created to reflect God's rule down to the earth and to reflect the earth's joy back up to God. The mirror was just, just at the right angle. We didn't see ourselves in it. We saw God and reflected his glory. But what we discovered was that an all-perfect creation, an all-perfect image, an all-perfect reflection was marred by what the scripture refers to as sin. It's essentially a a word that's taken on a lot of meaning, but it means missing the mark laid out by God. Man's desire to be for himself God, we readjust the mirror off God, so it's looking directly at ourselves because it's we that desire to rule and reign over all creation and reflect the glory to God back to ourselves. Now last week, we looked at the role of religion and rules by understanding the context into what we know as the Ten Commandments were given. If you weren't here, it's somewhat of a controversial teaching, but it's actually not at all if you read the scriptures. The, the Ten Commandments were not given, as maybe has been handed down to you over time, they were not given as rules that have to be kept in order that you go to heaven and not hell. Heaven and hell are very real places, but our eternities are not dependent on our ability to do more good than bad. Check out last week's teaching. God, in his decision not to leave mankind alone, instead he he devises this cosmic rescue mission. And he starts it with a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, you and all who would follow you are not going to be made righteous in the eyes of God because you do more good than bad, because you keep the Ten Commandments. I am establishing with you and all of your people a new covenant that will go on through all of time, You will be made righteous and stand before me righteous, not by your works, but by your faith. And then he tells Abraham he's going to make him into a great nation, and that nation is going to be a blessing for all of the earth. It is in that context, as God takes this nation out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he calls Moses up to receive from him what in Judaism is not referred to as the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Utterances. Because they're rooted in things that are meant to be in God's kingdom and true of God's people. They flow out of how we were designed, who we were meant to be. They describe what living up to a certain value and a certain identity and a certain destiny would look like. John Ortberg said it best. He said, we read them as this is what you have to do. But God was saying, this is who you are. God was through these utterances and lots of other rules. This is why you get some of the what appear crazy rules in, in chapters like Leviticus. What God was trying to do was create for himself a unique nation, separate and different than all of those that surrounded it. And one of the really interesting ways in which the nation was going to be different, and there's a lot. I mean, you know, if you go into some of the ancient rules, you'll see there's rules on clothing and all kinds of stuff, and people try to apply them to Christians today, and it's just folly and silliness and all the rest. Of those laws weren't meant to apply to you. But here's the, here's the deal. There was this one really interesting way that the nation of Israel was going to be different. Every nation that surrounded Israel had a king. And just like there was no need for statues or images of God because he had his people to reflect his reign, his people didn't need a king. They had God. 
His people had a king. They could rely on God and trust God. There was another reason that God didn't want his people to have a king. Have you noticed something about kings and presidents? No matter what party. When things are going well, it's because the king is awesome. Such a great and mighty and powerful king. And when things are going bad, well, it was that administration before me that made all of this mess. And I'm just trying to clean it up. And so God, God didn't want Israel to have a king because he wanted to be clear, since they were the Salem and the reflection of God, everyone would know that as Israel succeeded and their wealth grew and their crops prospered and there was peace and prosperity and joy in the land, the surrounding Asian nations would look to Israel and wonder, huh, I wonder who their God is because they don't have a king. I wonder... I wonder what, what's different over there. Because I have all these polytheistic gods that I'm worshiping. They only seem to have one, and he seems to be protecting them. And so Israel wasn't to have a king. They didn't need one. At least that's what God thought. And so now some of you know the story. They get these ten utterances of what they're supposed to be. God creates for them this unique people, and he leads them into a unique land. And after they get there, they do what we do, and there's times of backsliding and times of restoration, but there are, there are generation after generation of moral chaos. You can read about it if you want in the Old Testament book of Judges. There's one chapter in here um, from that book. It's really interesting. And so you, you can see what happens is they get in the promised land, and they take the mirror, and they readjust it back onto themselves. No need for God, no need to reign in his name, no need to reflect glory to him. I'll take the glory myself. And maybe it's summed up no better than the last line of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as he saw fit. Mirror on me. It's this combination of moral chaos and historically the rise of the Philistines, Israel's arch nemesis, which leads, that brings context to one of the Bible's great stories. You're going to know it. It starts with this confrontation between the prophet Samuel, who was leading Israel on God's behalf, and now because the Philistines have already beaten them up once, now a very frightened people of Israel. Here's how it goes. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Because Israel didn't need a king. But his sons did not follow his ways. In fact, it was just like judges. They turned aside after dishonest gain and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old. I get said that to me all the time. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. But dad, all the cool kids are getting one. We don't want to be unique anymore. We don't want to be a blessing anymore. Forget this whole reign and reflect thing. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. Which of course, because Samuel understands that God is their king already. It upsets them. When they said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, and so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. 
as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. Anybody remember utterance one? You shall have no other god but me. Just as they've done to me, so they are doing now to you. Listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. I just love this because it's just so true about kings. Samuel's upset, but he goes to the people and he says to them, look, I'll give you a king. But I want you to understand what you're signing up for when you get one. You don't really know what it is you're asking for. If I give you a king, here's what's going to happen to you. And he gives them this list of stuff. I'll give you a couple. And he goes, if I give you a king, he's going to take your sons and he's going to make them serve and run in front of his chariots. See, the king doesn't go first. The king puts your kid first in battle. And he's going to take your daughters and your daughters are going to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And then he's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your grain and your servants and your cattle and he's going to use them for his own use. And then Samuel, after he gives him all these things, you know, you really shouldn't take a king because this is what's going to happen. When he gets done with the list, he looks at them and he goes, he says, listen, when the day comes, you're going to cry out from relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord's not going to answer you that day. Instead of reconsidering, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they shouted. We want a king over us, and then we'll be like all the other nations. Here's the real reason they wanted one, by the way. With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so when Samuel heard that all the people said what they had said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. You can almost hear the sadness, right, and the resignation in the voice of God. Give them a king. They want a king. Why? Because they want a king to fight their battles for them. Times are tough. Things are scary. I got the whole God thing. Uh, but we already got our butts kicked by the Philistine once before. But maybe if we had a real God or a real king, a tough guy, this wouldn't have happened. And so Israel picks its first king, King Saul, because Saul was going to fight Israel's battles for them. Now, it turns out, if you read the scriptures, you'll come to, to know the story of Saul. Saul is someone with deep character flaws. He's dishonest. He lacks integrity. So why in the world would Israel pick Saul as their king? Anybody know why? He's big. He's a big guy. Quote, He's as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Saul was a bad you-know-what. And if I want someone to fight my battles for me, if I'm going to put my trust in someone, he better be big and handsome and rich and powerful. And So Saul fit the suit. And so with God on the outs and tall Saul now ruling the day, The Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Allah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. And now, with this context, may I introduce you to a story of your youth. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was six cubits in a span, about nine and a half feet tall, to which Saul said, Holy smokes. (laughs) He's 
big. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. He had some kind of bronze things on his legs. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft, it was a spear, not a javelin, a spear, so he stabbed people with it. It was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Just the end of his spear weighed 15 pounds. So Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out? Why do you come out here and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Hey, send out Saul. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you'll become our subject and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words... Saul, you know, King Saul, Tall Saul, Handsome Saul, Tough Guy Saul. And all of the Israelites were fired up. All of the Israelites were ready to kick some butt, some Philistine hind. All the fall, they were ready to die for a cause if need be, because they had Saul. And all the Israelites were... Dismayed and terrified. <laughs> Turns out Tall was a tough guy people thought he was. At least in the face of a giant. Reminded me of a story I ran across in my study this week. A man arrives at the pearly gates. St. Peter says to him, well, I must say, you haven't done anything particularly good in your life. Or for that matter, bad. I don't know what to do with you. By the way, this goes against the whole grace thing, but we'll talk about that another day. <laughs> Can you tell me, he says to him, about one impressive deed in your life? And the guy said, well, funny you ask. I once saw a bunch of bikers harassing a young woman. I pulled my car up to them. I grabbed my tire iron. I walked up to their leader, a huge man full of tattoos with piercings all over his body. And I wanted to intimidate him. So I took that tire iron and I slapped him in the side of the head as hard as I could. And I said to him, you leave this girl alone. You hear me? And then I stared at all the rest of them and said, you all get lost or you're going to have to answer to me. And say, Peter's searching his records. He goes, wow, I'm really impressed. I don't see that here. When did this happen? Guy goes, about a minute and a half ago. <laughs> Takes a minute, doesn't it? <laughs> see, I can relate to this story. And so can every guy in here who's gone into a college bar on a Thursday night. My hope, my courage, my boldness, my peace, my comfort winds up often focused on someone else. See, when I went to college, it wasn't like it is today. See, today, these soft kids, they go online. They see what the person looks like, right? They have, oh, do you like to sleep in late? Or, well, you know, what kind of music do you like? And when I went to, to Rutgers, you just showed up, right? And I remember I got, remember the thing was you had to get there early to establish dominance in the room, right? <laughs> And so I was about 5'10", maybe 155 pounds wet. And so I showed up early because I was going to establish dominance in the room. And I got there and I picked my bed and I, was, I waited my roommate. I didn't see my roommate so much at first as I did see his shadow as it entered the room. <laughs> and his name was Bruce. Bruce was about 6'5", 240 pounds. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I guess we see who's going to be running this room. Bruce, would you like this bed? Um, <laughs> Got here early, but if you'd like it, I mean, it's all yours. 
And Bruce, I mean, he was a nice guy, but he used to drive me nuts. Like, he would, he would listen to Boston all the time. You remember Boston? I mean, look, Boston once in a while, I mean, all right, fine, but 24-7 on a thing, like... And so, I didn't have a ton of use for Bruce until I went out to the bars on Thursday night. <laughs> because then when I went in, I went in with Bruce. And people look at you a little different when you walk in with Bruce, you know what I mean? They attributed to me a little bit more strength than maybe I was able to muster up. It's like when I walk around the garbage dump with Galuccio. I feel the same exact way. <laughs> my hope and my courage and my boldness and my peace and my comfort, it was in Bruce. Now, one night Saul showed up, but that's a story for another day. We'll talk about that then. Or excuse me, one night Goliath showed up. We'll talk about that another time. So here's the question I, I want to ask you. Is it possible, listen now, is it possible there is a direct relationship between your hope, your courage, your boldness, your peace, your comfort, and what it is or who it is in which you put your trust? Or maybe put another way, could it be that everything that you have been looking for, everything you desire, want, and need, the happiness that all of us keep saying that we just want for us and our kids, is it possible that it all ultimately depends on who you depend on? And is it possible that it is for this very reason God said in his second utterance to Moses on Mount Sinai, you shall not make for yourself carved images of anything, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Is it possible what God is talking about? It's not just carved images and idols, but anything which his people begin to trust or depend on other than him, even if it's a tall, handsome king, a tall, handsome man, a very prestigious career, an oversized 401k, a very selective college, a very impressive resume, because your joy and peace and comfort the happiness you're looking for, it all depends on who you depend on. Now watch this, because David comes into the story now. David winds up being Israel's second king, and he comes on the scene. And, and this story, I want you to know, has almost nothing to do with a slingshot. Because at this point, David's probably about 15 years old. He's a, a shepherd boy. He's the puniest of his father's sons. All the other sons are off at war, at war with Goliath. David's home, and his father essentially gathers him up and sends him to the front lines with some sandwiches to reinforce the boys as they cower. And Goliath has been taunting the army of the Philistines for weeks. And so David gets there. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry again. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left these things with the keeper of the supplies. David, I like this. David runs to the battle lines. He asks his brothers, hey, how are things going, boys? And as he's talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled for him in great fear. I just think this is the funniest thing. They're doing this twice a day, every day. They get their courage up. They run out there. They shout the war cry. As soon as Goliath comes out, they flee back in fear. And so David catches wind of this. He sees what's going on. And then he starts to hear that King Saul, remember tall Saul, handsome Saul? King Saul has actually come up with a bribe 
And so David goes, what is this uh, I'm hearing? And so he gets an answer. The Israelites had been saying, do you know how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. Does this sound familiar? He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt him and his family from taxes in Israel. In other words, the king will give up all of the, th- all of the things that the king made the king the king. Whatever was due the king was at stake in this fight. And here comes 15-year-old, puny old David. And he looks at Goliath and he has this great line. He goes, who is going to remove this disgrace from Israel? This disgrace. And then he stands up and he goes, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so unlike Israel, who had put their trust in a king, and unlike Saul, who had put his trust in his height and looks, David, his trust, his hope, and his mind are somewhere completely different. He trusts in the promises God had made to him, the power of God, because he understands his courage and boldness depend on who you depend on. What you're looking for, your happiness, your joy, your peace, your comfort, your boldness, your strength, All of it depends on who you depend on. And so David said to Saul, he gives him a little lesson here. This is so fascinating. David goes, let no one lose heart. Don't give up on account of the giant. Your servant will go and fight him. I came across this study this week. Because these people, the people of God, they had lost heart in the face of a giant. They were paralyzed, stuck, immobile. There was this psychological study, an experiment in the 60s by a guy named Martin Seligman. He was a graduate student at UPenn. And he discovered an interesting phenomenon called learned helplessness. Now, I didn't do this study, so I know we all love our dogs. And don't email me. I didn't do it. But here's what happened. It happened when some dogs were given slight electric shocks over which they had no control. No matter what the dogs did, they could not stop the shocks. The the shock would just randomly stop. Later, the dogs were placed in a situation where they easily could stop the shocks. They took the dogs and they put them in a box that had just a little low barrier in the middle of it. All they had to do was step over the barrier to the other side and the the shock would stop. Ordinary dogs, you take any dog, you put it in there, they learn to do it quickly. When they're shocked, they just jump around to the other side and they find relief. However, these dogs that had been shocked so long, they had learned they were powerless to stop the shocks. When they put them in, they had come to believe no matter how hard they tried, nothing was going to make a difference. They didn't try. They lay down and refused to even move. They just stood there and took the shocks, even though just moving a couple of feet would have made all the difference in the world. And Seligman describes the phenomenon this way. He said, learned helplessness is the giving up reaction, the quitting response that follows from the belief that whatever you do doesn't matter. Can I share with you guys? I know some of you are right there this morning. Now, I don't know what your giant is. I asked a friend right after the service, what's your giant? He's like, I gotta think about that. But that's where some of you are this morning. There is a proverbial giant in your way. It's facing you. And because you've put your faith and trust and hope in the wrong thing or the wrong person, you've given up. You've lost heart. You're paralyzed. Your soul hasn't come through for you because what you depended on and what you trust in it hasn't come through. And like Israel's army in the face of its giant, you're stuck. You lost hope. 
I'm not going to get better. My kids aren't going to be better. My marriage isn't going to be better. Nothing's ever going to change. In fact, when when you see Saul, you see Saul, he he displays what his trust is in again. Saul replied, David says, I'm going to go take him on. Don't worry. Saul goes, you're not going to be able to, to go out against the Philistine and fight him. Look, you're a puny kid. You're a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David... See, David's been living in a different way than Saul. David, his whole life, has been used to understanding that his dependence is God, on God. What it is he was looking for, depended, his hope, his courage, his boldness, depended on what he depended on. And so David said to Saul, look, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, this is interesting. Just pause for a moment for those of you who know the scriptures a little bit. David says, when a sheep or a wolf came and took one of the hundred, I left the 99 and I went after the one. Hmm. I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine is going to be like one of them because I'm a really good slingshot. Because I'm tougher than Saul. Because he's defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the barrel, rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David's boldness and strength doesn't come from some inner reservoir or from his size or strength. It comes from where he puts his trust. His courage was dependent on who it was he depended on, and he depends on the Lord. I love this. Check this out. Saul still does not get it. And some of you guys have Saul's in your life. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. Now remember, why was Saul chosen king? Because he's tall. And why is David not on the front lines? Because he's small. So Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around. Because he wasn't used to them. I can't go in these, he said. Saul says, here, do it, like, do it like I do. You can't go out there like that. I know you trust in God and everything, but that's not going to work. Here, put, I love this because David's too, or Saul's too chicken to go out there himself. But here, put on my tunic. It's this great story for anybody out there who's been told you can't do it. You're too small, too weak, too dumb, too poor. You can't make a difference. You can't change Guatemala City. You can't help the poor. You're wasting your time. Maybe somebody's called, maybe God has called you to something. The Holy Spirit's worked in your heart. Maybe somebody's told you you can't do it this way. This is the way the world works, kid. You got to go another way. Take my path. Go the way I did it. But you feel so clearly called by God in a different direction. And somebody keeps trying to box you into the old patterns. I just love the words of David. I see him walking around tripping over Saul's armor. Saul, who's too afraid to go on his own. And he just looks up and he goes... Yeah, I can't do this. I'm not going to go this way. And he lays down his armor and he heads out. And Goliath sees him come and he looked over. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you've defiled. And now I just love this. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Can't you just picture Saul? 
You know, this kid's an idiot. <laughs> this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. Why? Here's what's so interesting. Back to the beginning of the story. Why? Why is God going to do this? Because the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He'll give all of you into our hands. David understands, unlike Saul, unlike Goliath. What God is up to is not going to glorify David. It's not going to make David's name known, though it did. In front of everyone, in front of his giant, in the face of people's fear, David grabs a hold of the mirror, twists it back towards God. So that the world again can see what it looks like when God's rule and reign comes to earth. And you can almost see David saying, in about one minute, you're going to know what it looks like when God reigns over fear, intimidation, and injustice. You know the story. Slingshot, couple of stones. That's not the point, though. The point is David's trust wasn't in the slingshot. It was in the Lord, the God he knew and walked with, that he had trusted time and time again so that when his giant appeared, he wasn't paralyzed by learned helplessness, but emboldened by the God of the universe. Dave, unlike Saul, or excuse me, David, unlike Saul, unlike Israel, unlike Goliath, knew his courage and his victory depended on who he depended on. I'm going to close with this. As the band comes up, David grows up to write most of the Psalms, Here's Psalm 20. I love this. Now this I know. I don't think. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, some in tall, good-looking men. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you want to enter the story of the scriptures this week, then understand this principle. Some, most, trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. What, what is your giant? What are you trusting in? I mean, think about praying this when you wake up this week. You know what, Lord, today I'm going to be tempted to trust in a lot of things, and I'm going to be afraid of things, because I put my trust in the wrong thing. What would it be like to, to, to send your kids off to school and instead of going, I'm so scared about what might happen if you just said, you know, some are going to put their trust in the principal. Some are going to put their trust in, in the guidance counselor. I'm going to choose this day to, to push my fears back and trust in the Lord my God. What would it look like when the phone call comes in when you do that? When the stock market goes the other way? In the face of whatever your giant is, when someone tells you you're crazy, it doesn't work that way, you're too little, you're too small, you're too insignificant, you're untalented, here, go this way. Do it the way I did it. This is the way the world says you have to do it. Put this suit on. I don't know. See, you don't understand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. And some in bosses and some in investments, some in Facebook likes, in Instagram followers. I trust in the name of the Lord my God. Israel didn't need a king, neither do you. Music